So Ecclesiastes chapter 4, if you don't have your Bible, or if you have your Bible and you're not there, uh, you'll want to find that. Um, this book it has been about Solomon, uh, the wisest man to ever live. Uh, he had more wisdom uh, than all of us combined. Uh, he had more ladies than, I guess, girlfriends. We could tally up around here. Uh, he had, and some of you are like, well, you didn't know about my high school days. And so, uh, no, he did. He had more wisdom. He had more money. He had all of these things uh, in his life. And he got to the end, and it left him extremely empty, left him extremely empty. And this book, every single time and every week, I've been talking to guys, and you guys have been talking to me, it is something that we relate to and relate with. Why? Number one, some of you are reading this book, and we're going back, and you can remember when you have done something that Solomon did. You place your faith in something, you put all your chips in the bag in something that left you feeling empty. And then there's another group of you that would say, I have, I, I'm currently doing that right now. And this book is just beating me up, hopefully in a good way. Hopefully you leave here encouraged. And then there's another portion of us that you are a follower of Christ. You would call Jesus your Lord and your Savior, you submit to him. But even in our following him, we constantly, our heart pulls us in different directions. It's just constantly pulling us in different directions. And as it does, Solomon serves us really well. And as I've said every week, he's just an old guy, super old, and he's just writing out his testimony. And if you were to do that, not that any of you are old. I mean, you're young chickens in here. If you... If you had to write out your testimony on your deathbed, what would be some things that you would say? What would you put down? What would you want, not your grandkids, because you try to talk to them now, they don't listen to you anyway. Your great-grandkids, or maybe your great-great-grandkids, what, what would be some instructions that you would give to them? And Solomon is doing that very thing, and serving us as God's word in his life if it could be summed up in an illustration, it is like a bucket with holes in it, constantly trying to fill it up and constantly being drained. And he is working tirelessly to fill his life up, and it's just draining him. It says in Proverbs 28, 26, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. As we study Ecclesiastes in this book, and it really hits us, or it runs against the grain, or it checks us in our heart, or makes us feel a certain way, it causes maybe anxiety for some, it causes maybe anger for some, it maybe causes regret for a lot of us, it is to bring us back to God's Word and to ask God, what do you want me to do right now with what's in front of me? If the book produces depression inside of us. That is not from God. If the book produces regret inside of us, that is not from God. What is from God is that we would say, from this day forward, from this day forward, I'll forget what's behind and press forward toward what's ahead. And this book hopefully has encouraged you in some way, in some way challenged you where you are in your life. As I've said in <clears throat> the past couple weeks, the book does build in the sense, at least for me, in where it confronts me in my life. And tonight, 
Um, I mean, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, I believe, is going to serve us all very well. And Solomon, if we're just going to read and see what God has for us tonight. So let's start in chapter 4, Ecclesiastes. It says this, Again, I saw the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. Let's talk about something for a second. Your first point tonight is what drives us away? What drives us away? Because Solomon, just like you and just like myself, he has seen some things. And in seeing some things, and not only seeing them from a distance, experiencing them has caused him to doubt and run away from God. He is talking about the oppressed, the tears of the oppressed. And he sees injustice, he sees good things hap- or bad things happening to good people, and he sees the tears of the oppressed, he sees the power of the oppressors. And it drives him away. And this is what he says in verse 2. Because of that, verse 2, And I thought, the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. Why would he say that? Why would he not want a life to exist? We know that every life is a gift from God. And has potential. And has the fulfillment of something. And is from God. And Solomon sits there and looks at an evil world and looks at the oppressed, the injustices. And he says, those who are dead are better off. Verse 3. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are under the sun. He is now speaking about an unborn child. And how an unborn child is better off than entering the world because of its great wickedness and evil and injustice. It causes grief in his heart. And what injustice or oppression is supposed to do to us, what it should do, is to see and respond. Solomon sees and runs from God. It was J.L. Mackey, who is a popular atheist, said this, If God exists, he would not allow pointless evil. And because there is so much unjustifiable, pointless evil in the world, the traditional God cannot exist. And I would say, amen. Because there is no such thing as pointless evil or unjustifiable evil. The problem of evil or bad things happening to good people in in our experience, it is in a sense for Christianity, it's one of the holes that we have that maybe people who don't follow God, what will they do? They'll point at that as a reason for not following God. How could a good God allow that? How could a good God allow that in your life or in your family's life? If you would serve God, what would we assume? And I just heard, again, this quote. I'm I'm trying not to quote too many people, but it was so good. Uh, Andy Stanley said this. We turn to a God when bad things happen, believing he could have kept them from happening in the first place. Is that not the Christian life? 
that when a bad thing happens, we turn to a God believing he had the power and the ability to not let it happen. Solomon, like a lot of your friends, would say, I've heard about awful, awful stories. I've heard about children being raped. I've heard about bad things happening to good people, and I can't follow that kind of God. I was sharing with a friend of mine talking about the Lord, and I had asked him what his story was. He said, I grew up Catholic. He said, I'm not, I wasn't super into it, but you know, we were going, and we went to Mass, and I went to Catholic school. And while I was, he said, when I was 17 years old, my niece, if anybody, or he said, my cousin, if anybody deserved a life, it was her. He said, was just a great person, had so much potential, so much joy in her life, and I got a phone call. And he said, drunk driver, T-boned her, right off of Cottage Grove. He said, on a Friday night at 10 o'clock, my cousin lost her life unjustly. And because of that, how am I supposed to serve that kind of God? Now, I don't want to start off too heavy tonight, but it's too late. <laughs> it's too late now. What drives us away <clears throat> is what we experience and what causes feelings and emotions for us and what we would do if we were God. And I could sit here tonight, we could talk about Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 and how God does not cause evil to happen, but he allows it for the purpose, for the purpose of drawing us back to him. So when we see oppression, instead of blaming God, what are we supposed to do is say, God, how would you want me to intervene? How would you want me to minister to someone? Despite how I feel, and we could talk about Romans 8, 28, man, causes all things to work together for good for those who love him. Hate that one. You always got someone bringing that up at a funeral, don't you? And it is, what we are supposed to do with oppression is say, I see this, and because of the oppression, it will cause action for me. Instead of what Solomon does, and what maybe some of you have done in here tonight, you've seen things that don't make sense in your mind if you were God, and it's caused you to kind of not run away, but maybe slip away a little bit. Maybe you quit praying a little bit. Maybe you quit jumping in your quiet time. Maybe you quit church a little bit. There are bad things, and you see those bad things, and you say, if I was God, I wouldn't have done that, which is a question I will typically ask someone. My friend, when I said, if you were God, what would you have done? Would you have picked up the car, moved it at that time? What would you do if you were God? Because a lot of times we'll put ourselves in our shoes and then we have to remind ourselves, I can't even manage my calendar. And we have to say, God, whatever you're doing, and I pray that the injustices and the things that don't make sense, would it draw me closer to you and not pull me away? Solomon is talking about the injustice. Number two, <clears throat> who is your ambition for? Verse four. Who is your ambition for? We're going to read verses 4 to 8. Then I saw all the toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Because I can't help myself, I have to read one verse and talk because there's all these thoughts in my head and I got to get them out before I forget. <laughs> 
our ambition, what Solomon says. You and I, why we get out of bed in the morning, what makes me drink four cups of coffee, what makes you run and run and buy and buy and sell and deal and make moves and business deals and this. He said, it's not because, it's not because you need to. It's because you have a friend that is ahead of you, that that person exists. I don't buy more stuff because I need it. What? I'm trying to buy stuff for people I don't even know for someone who is ahead of me. And Solomon says it's because of our envy or jealousy and our motives and what's inside of us. And I have to remind myself of this phrase, not everything is a competition. (laughs) And I know it's hunting season. And I know you got competitions. I mean, I've been in your house. You got deer on the wall, and I want to know how many antlers. I want to know how far you shot it. You know, some of you shot it, and then you jumped off the tree. You tackled it with a knife, and you're Daniel Boone. And you know, I need to hear all the all the stories. And you ate the heart raw, and you know all these crazy things that you guys do. But everything, not everything, is a competition. But that's what we like to do. We're men. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's when my envy or my ambition is wrongly placed. And the only reason I am competitive is because there's someone in front of me. And the weird thing about my, my competitive spirit is every time I get in front of someone else, guess what? There's somebody else. The, the top of one ladder is always the bottom of another. Just the top, and then one more and one more. I have to ask myself the question, what is my ambition for? Philippians chapter 4, verse 11 says this. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul would agree, and Solomon is talking about the same thing, that contentment is a foreign skill to be learned. It is a skill to learn. Ambition is not bad. I believe it is actually very healthy. But here's my point tonight. Ambition is healthy when it is obedience, when it's from God. Ambition does not leave you empty when it is from God. And when my ambition is wrongly placed, wrongly placed, and I accomplish or compete in something, and it gets me to the top of another ladder, when it's wrongly placed, then I'm left empty. But what if, what if my ambition is about being a good father? What if my ambition is about being a good husband? What if my ambition is for what God calls me to, to work hard and to serve well? And it's not about ladders, it's not about trophies, it's not about who's got the biggest income, it's not about who's got the biggest this, it's constantly, God, what is is obedience for me? I believe when it comes to ambition, obedience is usually personal. It's what has God called you to do? Who is ambition for? Verse 5, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. It says in Proverbs 26, 15, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wearies him out to bring it back to his mouth. There are some people so lazy, they need spoon-fed. They have yet to grow out of the toddler stage. A fool folds his hands and says, you know what? I won't be ambitious. I'll sit on my butt, and I won't do anything, and I want somebody to cut my steak and feed it to me. I won't be ambitious. That also is wrong. And he says then the other extreme, and here he gives the perfect example. 
Verse six, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toiling and a striving after the wind. I tried to think of something as far as an illustration for a visual, but I couldn't think of anything well enough for it. But he says, one handful of quietness or contentment is better than two hands constantly digging and trying to hold more. That it's a skill. Who is my ambition for? If my ambition is from God and is biblical and is healthy, one handful is enough. But if it's not, it's constantly more. It's constantly more. And Solomon says that is like chasing carrots. Just dangling right in front of us. It's a striving after the wind. Let me finish this section. Where was I? Verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. This is, this is where it kind of gets sad. And I don't want to be too sad tonight. I'm not feeling sad. Hopefully you're not. But he gets, it gets kind of sad. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other. Either son or brother. Yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches. So he never asks For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is a vanity in an unhappy business. This is what he just said. 2020 version. He said, there's there's an old man and he is very lonely. He doesn't have many friends. He's by himself a lot. He doesn't have any brothers. He doesn't have anyone to hold him up. He never asks the question, why am I working so hard? Why am I trying so hard? He never asked the question. So what happened to him? He's alone. I bet, if I was a betting man, every single one of us could say, either now or there's been a time in my life where my ambition has hurt a form of my relationships. Either hurt my marriage, hurt my relationship with my, with my kids, Hurt my relationship with brothers that I was supposed to be leaning on. My ambition caused me. I was just so busy. I never asked the question. Never contemplated it. Solomon looks at it. He says, that is an unhappy business. That is a miserable life. He ends up alone. And the sweet thing about this story, the sweet thing, the gracious thing, is for Solomon, he's writing it at a point where it's just too late. It's just too late for him. There's a, there, I mean, I, I'm assuming he's on his deathbed. He's writing this thing. I mean, he's penning out these, this wisdom literature for us. If you're here tonight and you have a pulse, it is not too late. It's just not. Your current ambition, wherever it's placed and who is it for, and a lot of times the person who it's for doesn't really need the, the, the benefits of the ambition anyway. So a lot of times it's in the name of providing It's in the name of providing. And I can tell you after being in youth ministry for some time, the girl who had a vehicle that barely ran, muffler falling off, cars kind of dented, painted, you can tell, whatever, and had a great relationship with her dad and could hug her dad, 10 days out of 10 would be able to say the girl who had an amazing car got the BMW, but no relationship with her dad, was a sad tragedy. 
Sometimes the ambition who it's for, it's not who we really think it's for. And we can justify it in saying it's X, Y, and Z. And trust me, I am not saying you do not have ambition. I'm not saying you don't seek to provide. I'm not saying we don't strive to be the men God has called us to be. We work hard. We do what God asks for us. But the question is, at what cost am I crossing the line? And this is where this one just messes me up. Just messes me up. Who is my ambition for? And where is it directed? Number three, the lonely road, because he continues on it. Two are better than one, verse nine, because they have good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, and he has not another to lift him up. So eventually, here's what's going to happen. Craig, I'm going to use you as an illustration tonight. Yeah, sit up straight. He's getting nervous right now. Craig eventually will reach an age where he can't walk well. Okay, he's about five years out. He's going to need a walker. He's going to need some help. And he's going to be struggling. Now, we're going to get him one of those life alert bracelets and things. I don't know. I'm getting out of hand here. Anyway, if Craig reaches a point where he falls and he falls alone, what happens? And he can't get up. Yeah, or he gets too lazy. He can't get up. He stays down. This is not rocket science, right? But to, get, to put it in your head, if Craig falls and he can't get himself up, he will stay on the ground. This is super deep. <laughs> this is super deep. Thank you, Craig. That was good. Just as good looking as always. <clears throat> if you fall and you fall alone... You stay down. You stay down. Solomon is just so practical. Verse 11. Again, if two lie together, uh, if, if, again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But, one, but how can one keep warm alone? Uh, some of you want to get a tattoo of this verse and tell your wife. You're going to apply. Ecclesiastes 4.11. By pastor said, I mean, can't be alone. Got to stay warm. Anyway. Uh, verse 12. <clears throat> And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Just taught this, or not taught it, but at a wedding we read Ecclesiastes 4, right? So we talk about a threefold cord is not quickly broken. We talk about marriage. We talk about the husband, the wife tying their life to God. Well, I think the reality is Solomon is talking about relationships here. And he's talking about the lonely road. He is talking about if you try to live life alone, what happens? And you fall, you stay down. It's very hard to pick yourself up. If you fall down in the cold by yourself, he's not making a, you know, a sexual joke here. He's not talking about that. What he is saying is, if you fall down in the cold, you'll what? You'll stay cold. Super practical. I was training for a marathon for some ungodly reason. And I was 21 years old. A buddy of mine, Jimmy Kibitza, had lived down the road, and we were, I was going to run to his house, ran to his house on a Sunday morning, and we were going to do this loop about 13 or 14 miles. It was, yeah, it was whatever. It was, I was young and dumb. I'm old and wise now. But anyway, 13 miles on a Sunday morning before church. I met up with him. We hit mile five or six, and Jimmy said this phrase. You know, he's in front of me, and, hey, Duma, <clears throat> yeah, man. He said, I forgot to tell you, I ha- this is so true, I have a heart condition, and I might pass out because I have in the past. 
huh? If, and he said this phrase, I'll never forget. He goes, if I do, just kick me off in the ditch and keep going. So he fell. What did I do? I kicked him off and I kept running. I finished the race. No, I'm just kidding. I would never do that. I'd be in prison. No, he, he made it. He didn't pass out. But I thought in my head, why would you tell me that mid-race, number one, or mid-run? Why, why would I find that out seven miles away? And how does that, ha- does that not happen for us as Christians where in the middle of the race, we decide that at that point, we need someone to hold us up? Not beforehand. And here's what I'm getting at. A lot of you are lonely. Life is cold. And maybe you have fallen. And it feels cold. And at this point, you've decided, how come no one asks me how I'm doing? How come nobody checks in on me? And we decide to blame people or blame God when we were not there to invest in the first place. I believe all of us need to ask this question here tonight. Who has my back and whose back do I have? And I know for the majority, I would say I'm preaching the choir. You're like, I I, I came. I got the notes. Like, I'm I'm back. I'm here. I I want to be here. Um, It is easy for us as men, is it not, just to live in isolation. And I mean, I probably got 10 reasons why. It's easier, right? It's safer. Um, If I'm busy, I know you are, it's time, it's effort, you have stuff, I mean, and a lot of times this this kind of stuff will come out about community and having someone to fall on, and it'll just end up getting super unpractical, right? It'll just end up being just so impractical where you say, well, I don't don't know what to do, I don't know how to do it. It says in Proverbs 18.24, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. I don't need to have 10 people to fall on. I don't want 10. I don't got that many friends. I don't think I got that many people like me. 10 people, I don't need 10. I don't need five. No, 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 no. I need one. I need one guy. I don't need everybody to know everything about me, despite unpopular opinion. That would get super weird really quick. I don't need everybody to know everything about me, but I need somebody. I need somebody. And I know, and when you get time at your tables, I mean, shoot, we'll go around. It's kind of like, yeah, I don't know. And I believe that we need to pray and ask God, God, would you bring someone my way or would you help me seek somebody out? A mentor, a friend, something, but I need to invest. If I do not invest, I cannot point and blame. I'll end up in the middle of a race, falling down in the cold, crying for help, but I told them too late. They're already, I mean, life's already happening. Life's already happening. It's Proverbs 18.1, which is probably my favorite proverb. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire, and he breaks out against all sound judgment. All of us have a form of dumbness. There's just certain parts where we're just really dumb. Uh, Mine is if you want me to try and fix something, repair something, I mean, I have very high levels of dumbness. I'll just, I'll bust down the wall, putting up a picture. I mean, I'll break something, moving a table, smash it into the wall. All of us have a form of dumbness in our life. All of us. Spiritually, when we are alone, 
we break out against all sound judgment. And Mike Duma be, becomes the exception. So I'll know something is true, but man, there's an asterisk in the Bible back in the back. It's got my name and it says, yeah, except for him. Except for him. Why do I need someone to fall back on? You already know. Because it's not if I fall. It's not if. I mean, that, the chances are one in a hundred. Uh, not one in a hundred. It's a hundred percent. I will fall. It depends when and how hard I fall and who is there to catch me. Who is there to catch me on my trust fall? Why don't I want community? Like I said, it's just a lot of work. It's risky. And I want to give a short... I guess what I have learned, and it's probably going to change over the next five years, but that's fine. What I have learned, when a man decides to open up, what we will do is we will test with the initial information. So we'll try to see if the person will receive what we have to say. So we'll say something, and if you can discern or understand or feel that someone is trying to open up to you, we collectively need to do two things. Number one, shut our mouth and listen. When a man decides to open up, he is already, we are already, I'm already a little bit nervous how it's going to be received. I'm anxious to what they're going to say. I don't, sometimes, just depends on the case, I don't need 10 tips of advice I need somebody to talk to. And the second thing is, what I have learned, I got to get something out when they are done talking. Hey man, this is when I have experienced that in my life. Man, you're opening up about pornography. I want to tell you about a season of my life that that, that that was prevalent for me and this is what God did. You got to get something out because when, the God, when we are opening up, I know, we, there is a piece of it where we'll say, man, we are afraid people will what? Gasp at our sin. Oh, and you're at church. I have friends when I invite them to church, bro, Duma, the church will burn down. I said, no, 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 man. I said, we are just, just like you. We have more in common than we, than we don't have in common as people, as human beings, when guys open up, there's a reason why, and I don't want to say too much about this because I'm going to, I want to give you some time at your tables for this tonight, but God uses his people to lift his people. He will use a brother in Christ. He'll use an older mentor. Man, sometimes he might use your kids. He'll use his people to lift his people and make sure we are turning to his people. Someone, if you, and for me to ask this question, this is what I had to ask. If I'm expecting to, for someone to have my back, whose back do I have? Who am I able to sit there and say, hey, do you, do you trust me with anything? If there's anything going on in your life, are you able to open up to me? I want to let you know I'm here for you in that case. Relationships are hard. Isolation is easier. I get more done, I'm able to accomplish more, whatever the case is, but Solomon is teaching in Ecclesiastes 4, there's a man who is alone. It's cold, it's sad, he doesn't have another friend to pick him up. He's teaching us, don't do that. 
Solomon, we were able to drag him out of the grave and bring him in here tonight, sit him on the table and talk to him. He would say, the lonely road is a lonely road. And don't take that route. Number four, this is if you want to be miserable. Great. Glad you came tonight. Verse 13. (laughs) Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. Uh Uh-oh. This verse, I mean... Even today, as I was thinking about this verse, I mean, this is the one that just, I mean, I feel like in a, in a healthy way, he's getting out the belt. He just is, is correcting me, correcting us on advice taking. And he brings up, it is better to be poor and young than to be old and have it all, but you can't hear anything. Let me finish it, verse 14. For he went from prison, and he gives the example, and he's talking about himself. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his kingdom he has been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. Verse 16. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, Yet, those who come later, and this is where it just hits right at home, not, will not rejoice in him. Surely, this also is a vanity and a striving after the wind. So, talks about taking critique. And he says in verse 16, those who come after him are unable to rejoice in him. He said, there's nothing worse than an old guy. And it could be young. I think the principle is interchangeable who no longer knew how to take advice. Now, there's a lot to be said here, so much. And I even uh, had to sit down with a few individuals and ask them, hey, what are some principles? What are some things you know? What are some, I guess, cliches? What is actually helpful? Because as every week, I know you guys are busy, you have stuff going on, and to take an hour and a half to two hours out of your night, I do not want to waste that time. I want it to be helpful to you, and helpful practical tips you can apply. What are some things about taking advice that I believe the Bible teaches and are some wisdom principles? It says in Proverbs 29.1, he who stiffens his neck, or he who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. There was a pastor that was, I mean, I guess, just fell off the deep end. I mean, just totally out to lunch after a lot of faithful years in serving. And I'd asked my dad, and we were talking about the situation, and this guy could quote the Bible backwards. It was just incredible, his Bible knowledge. And I looked at my dad, and I said, Dad, how does that happen? And he said to me, you got to apply it, bud. Solomon is a guy who had the wisdom up here, but not in here. And wisdom is being able to discern when to take correction. I, b- I believe at its core, it's, it's helping us take correction. And um, it's never fun taking correction. It's not enjoyable. There's a few things that I have to ask when someone is critiquing me or giving me advice. Number one, how can I turn this critic into a coach? 
what they're saying, is there any truth in it? Probably is. Even if they're lighting up my day and how no good I am and I did this and I'm this. I think uh, it's the story you guys were talking about, Tim and my dad, about uh, David. It's in 2 Samuel. I forget the reference. Yell it out. 16. Uh, and the guy, he's running. David just got finished in the army. I'll bring it up afterwards. But the guy is just chewing David out. And the guy says, hey, should we go kill him to David, his, his servant? And David said, he might be telling the truth. He might be telling the truth. I got to ask, are there, is there anything true about what they're saying? Number two, there is a reason I have two ears and one mouth. <laughs> two ears. I don't like that. I wonder how much I'd talk if I had two mouths. I don't know. But <laughs> there's a reason why. And here's what is crazy about sin. Blind spots are blind spots. You do not know your blind spots. Once you say this is a blind spot, it is no longer a blind spot. Blind spots are what? Blind. You can't see them. So when someone is correcting me, I got to ask, is there anything true? Three years ago, sitting in my small group, I am the leader, okay? We're going to talk about how to follow God that night. I forget what it was. And it was a young married group. And my wife had made a, phrase, had made a statement and I said, no, that's not what we're going to do. We're going to do this. A girl across the room says, and I mean, Kate, she lit me up. She, and this is in front of about 20 people. I'm the Bible study leader, mind you, at my house. She stands up and she says, you tell her no a lot. I mean, I'll, I'll kick you out right now. No, I, I didn't say that. Uh, I didn't say that. You know what I did? I told a joke just to blow it under the rug real quick. That's what I did. And then when she went to leave, I had to pull her aside with my wife, and I said, hey, what you said, I see where you're coming from. And it was something dumb. I don't even know why I cared about it. I was like, what meal we're having? I have no idea. And I said, do you feel like that's true? And then I had to ask my wife, do you feel like that's true? She said, well, I guess, yeah, you know, and she's super sweet, so she's, and it was true. And I had to, I, and the following week, I had to, I mean, I still, we talk about it at our small group to this day. Remember that night, Kate lit up Mike? Like, it was what I needed to hear, but not what I wanted to hear. Her name is not Karen, it is Kate. <laughs> oh my gosh, Proverbs 9, 7 to 10. Proverbs 9, 7 to 10. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abused, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be, or he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I am so amped for chapter 12. I have to hold it all back to talk about the fear of the Lord. But anyway, um, someone who is able to take correction... He's talking about, and he said, it is worse. That is how to be miserable. That is how to be lonely and die, to hear someone. Now, don't hear this wrong. There are times you should have a backbone, right? There are times you should hold your ground to what is true. But I am willing to bet in my life, more times than not, I should shut up and listen. More times than not. So I'm going to give you guys 15 minutes at your table to answer these questions 
I'm going to give you some time. Take your time. I'm going to give you a two-minute warning, and we'll uh, come back and close things up. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel 18. 1 Samuel 18. I'm going to wrap up here, and I want to read this story that I believe has uh, a lot of connections to this story with Solomon and Ecclesiastes 4 and I think it will serve us well as we wrap up tonight. 1 Samuel 18, starting in verse 1. As soon as he, and this is right after David defeated Goliath. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit. Man, Colossians 2.4, talking about soul being knit to Christ, one to another, but also was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and he gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful And wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As we talked about, who has your back and who has mine? David and Jonathan, their soul being knit together, making a promise to one another, and Jonathan being there for David, and David was more successful because of Jonathan. Who do I have in my life that I am able to be more successful or obedient to God because they're there? Verse 6, and as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistines, the women came out. Uh Uh-oh. In all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another and they celebrated. So they got home from battle and King Saul comes strutting in and all the ladies come out to praise him. And he's probably feeling pretty good. Probably did well at war, probably did good. This is right after David and Goliath, remind you. And this is the song they sing. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his what? Ten thousands. Uh Uh-oh. So Saul was expecting praise, anticipating. And he gets bent out of shape from a Carrie Underwood song. This is what it says. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed to thousands, and what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. It gets worse for Saul, as you would know. His life takes a massive turn. And David does get the kingdom. My question tonight as we wrap this up is, who has your back and whose back do you have? And who has your eye? Who has your eye? Saul sat there and eyed David from that point on, and I'm sure it ate him alive. 
his success. Drove him, and I mean, we could, we're not doing a study about Saul, but you know, some of you would know what happens to Saul's life from that day forward. Who has, who has your eye? It says in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 9, the famous prayer of Jehoshaphat <laughs> says, We know not what we do, but our eyes are on you. God, I have no idea what I'm doing. Sometimes you just got to pray that. God, I'm a knucklehead. I'm sinful. I don't take correction well. I'm pretty lonely. I'm not good with this. I don't know what to do here, but here's the promise I'll make tonight, God. I'm going to put my eyes on you. I'm going to focus on you. I'm going to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And I'm going to pray that if anyone takes he if anyone thinks that he stands take heed lest ye fall god i promise you tonight at least for today i'll make the promise today my eyes will be on you let me pray god we thank you as always just for your word and for how it helps us it ministers to us we thank you for solomon and his life and the lessons we learn from him. I honestly have no idea, but I believe, I hope that one day we would get to meet him in heaven. God, I pray that we would learn from his lessons. I pray that you would help us to apply these things to our life. Whatever the one thing we need to take home tonight, God, would you press that in on us? And on our drive home, would we have some conversations with you? And would you minister to us? God, I hope as a group we keep our eyes on you. Even when we have no idea what we're doing, God, you promise to guide us and direct us and keep our paths straight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.